You're listening to Amphibicast. Hey everyone, welcome back. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight's episode, I've got a, a kind of a new perspective that I've never really had before. And uh, we've often talked about keeping amphibians in different capacities. We've talked about in the wild. We've talked about keeping them in private collections. Well, what about keeping them in a zoo? And tonight we've got someone who works in a zoo. We've got uh, zookeeper Mason Kleist from the El Paso Zoo. And he's going to give us uh, some insights in terms of what it's like to keep frogs and really a whole host of animals that he works with in a zoological capacity. So we're going to get into quite a few topics and i'm really looking forward to this but uh why don't we get into introductions first so um mason welcome what's going on my man how you doing hey what's going on man glad to be here cool now mason actually reached out to me which is which is actually pretty awesome because i've been trying to get someone on the show who had familiarity working in a zoo environment or, or something to that you know an aquarium etc and um this just totally just came together perfectly so Mason, why don't we start out with your background? You work at the El Paso Zoo, but why don't you back up, tell us your story. What were some of your first experiences with animals like, and how did you end up as a keeper at the El Paso Zoo? So my story is pretty interesting, I guess. To me, to me, I think it is. I grew up in South Florida, so already there, you know, that's home to all kinds of wildlife. Reptiles and amphibians were definitely my first passion. Just catching lizards, snakes, anything I can get my hands on as a kid uh so that kind of drew the passion my my parents never let me get a dog so that also was probably like okay i guess i have to try something else here so i just i'd catch some anoles or a black racer or anything i can find and put it in a tank for a couple weeks and then re-release it i was really i was really big on re-releasing them and stuff but then from there i think i got my first reptile it was a like a bunch of turtles like painted turtles or something like that like everyone's first reptile i'm sure is uh i was like 10 years old and i loved them i grew they grew up to be huge i kept them in my, my dad made a pond for them eventually we kept them in the backyard it was fun and then i had leopard geckos i had iguanas snakes i had all kinds of stuff just like the generic stuff that anyone would get but then if you want to get into like what I do professionally now, I went to school for conservation biology, actually. So it wasn't in any kind of like animal science like some people usually do. I just got a general biology degree with an emphasis in conservation uh, because that's what I'm mainly passionate about. And I was going to do fish and wildlife. And then I saw an internship for at a zoo to be a reptile keeper. And so I was like, OK, I, I would love to do that. Let's see how that goes. And it went great. And I sent in an application here to the El Paso Zoo because it just seemed like a cool opportunity. I was going to work with all kinds of different animals. It wasn't just reptiles. I didn't want to just focus on like one thing. I wanted to be able to branch out and see a few things. And then uh, got the job offer here and moved out here a couple of years ago. And I've been here ever since. It's got to be living the dream. I mean, <laughs> I remember being a kid. And I mean, here, here in where I live, we had the, the, the Bronx Zoo and the, the Bronx Zoo was just like incredible. And for, yeah. I was able to go there, you know, quite a bit. We actually still have season passes, but nice. you look at it as kind of being this ultimate achievement yet. I mean, I know in real life, there's got to be a lot more just kind of day to day grind that goes behind it. I mean, it's not always just showing off cool animals to an audience or, or, you know, feeding tigers or whatever it is, but 
Can you walk us through an average day of, like, what's an average day like at the zoo? It's definitely not as glamorous as everyone probably thinks it is. I'm not just sitting out here cuddling with animals every day. I'm not just, you know, hanging out with animals and having the best time of my life. Like, animals do poop, so you do need to be able to clean it up. Uh, so that's, I, my nephew always asks me too, like, what do I do? And I just tell him I'm a professional poop scooper. That's basically what I am. Uh, but I get to have fun with the animals too. So that's, that's kind of what I do. But and I, an average day for me, I'm a pretty busy guy at the zoo. I, I've taken on a lot of projects cause I like to stay busy. I don't like to just kind of like go on, uh, autopilot throughout the day. I like to stay busy. I like to, um, make sure all my animals are doing okay. So I, an average day for me would be husbandry. So you're going to check on all, the, all your animals for whatever routine you're on that day. Make sure they're alive and hanging out and breathing and doing all doing good. And then usually they get a morning diet, so you're going to want to feed them first thing in the morning. And then if they're on exhibit, you're going to want to clean their exhibit before letting them out on exhibit. But some of them are in back holdings, you know, not to the public. So you just have to clean and feed. Um, and if they are an animal that needs to be trained, uh, whether one or two times a day, you'll do their daily training, get that out of the way, and then shift them on exhibit. And then do more cleaning, go to lunch. After lunch, it's usually for projects or any kind of like, right now we're closed uh, for, we're, we're open. We, we were closed for like 11 months, but um, we're not doing any keeper talks right now. But typically we would do like, if there's like any kind of keeper talks in the afternoon or something like that, we would have to do that. Um, but yeah, usually just in the morning, it's husbandry. And in the PM, it's training and closing. This may sound like an odd question. It kind of just came up as you mentioned about the zoo being closed for 11 months. Yeah. A lot of what you do focuses on conditioning and training and whatnot and, and being observant of animal behavior. I know you work a lot with, with, with mammals. You work with, you work with pronghorns, right? Yeah. So I work with, they're called uh, peninsular pronghorns is the subspecies, but there's three different subspecies. There's the Mexican and the Sonoran. There's also some in Wyoming and Oregon, but they kind of get grouped together. Um, but yeah, I work with the peninsular pronghorn, which are the most endangered uh, with only 50 left in the wild. <laughs> yeah. My, well, my question is, has their behavior changed dramatically in the past 11 months since there's been no people in the zoo? Uh, yeah. So I think most of the animals at the zoo have, definitely enjoyed not having people there i know a lot of people may not want to hear that because everyone thinks that they go to the zoo and all the animals love all the people uh but sometimes they like the break and like the um the peace and quiet and not getting yelled at or people throwing things at them i've seen you know it's i get i see the worst out of people but i also see the best so it's not like everyone that comes to the zoo is just awful but um I, I would say our more intelligent species of animals, like our greater apes, our primates, um, some of our larger cats, they definitely, and the, and the parrots and stuff like that, they definitely understand that something was different and that they got a little used to it. And then when people came back, it was it, they were more excited because they were like, we get to see more people again. Sometimes it's, they know that they're going to get fed by the general public. People throw popcorn, people throw all kinds of food in there. So they know they get, they're getting fed from them and they get excited when people come. Um, but some of our, like the pronghorn, for example, they're, they're a more skittish species since they're a prey species. So when large groups all of a sudden show up, they definitely were a little stressed and a little not themselves, but they've adjusted just fine now. They're, they're good to go. 
Yeah, the behavior of animals in captivity always sort of fascinated me. I mean, I'm no behavior expert by any means. If anything, I'm, I'm an armchair behaviorist. But one of the things that I always found the most interesting about going to the zoo, and especially since I go reg- I go fairly regularly. I mean, I know a lot of people out yeah. there who aren't in the animal world may go to the zoo once in a lifetime, once a year, once every five years. I go fairly regularly. And I don't really go with like the pressure as like, I have to see everything in the zoo. I'll go and I'll just find an exhibit and I'll hang out and I'll, I'll watch those animals for a while. Well, one of the most interesting species to watch in the zoo is other humans because they all kind of do the same thing. And I, I totally get what you mean about, you know, the seeing the different extremes of people's behavior and, Everyone has it in their head to go into the zoo and speak to animals like they're speaking to their pet. <laughs> do, do you know what I'm talking? Do you guys get that there too? Like people go in and like they start making like kissy noises and like stuff yeah. like that. And and I'm like, I'm like, you're making that no- like first of all, like that noise is a, that's a prey call. You know the reason <laughs> the reason that the red wolf is coming over to you and you're making that noise is because it's it's, it's it sounds like a dying rabbit. It's it's a it's a prey call. Yeah, I just I never really understood why people go to the zoo to how do I put this? Just cause a ruckus. Yeah, just to cause a that's a good word, ruckus. Just to cause a ruckus. Just to be annoying, yeah. Like, or just, they'll just bring their kids there just because they need to blow off some steam, and the kids just run ahead, and the parents aren't watching them, and they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah, we get we get that a lot. <laughs> Yeah, it's got to be difficult because you 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 have obviously an obligation to the public to provide an exhibit that's that's entertaining and educational, et cetera. But at the same token, I just maybe because I've spent long hours. I mean, I I volunteered in an aquarium years ago, and I used to sit in the the I did was did exhibit interpretation for the sharks, and oh, it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, we we don't we didn't have any real, uh, you know, we had like nurse sharks in there, and maybe like a couple of. Um, Oh God, I can't remember the I can't remember the name of them. But in any event, you'd sit All there. All sharks are cool, man. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But you'd you'd watch these things for six or eight hours at a clip, and I'd just be sitting there watching them over and over and over again. And then like nothing happens. And then one day, there was a there was a school of fish in there. They roll they ball up into this big bait ball, and I'm like, okay, this is where it gets interesting. And <laughs> one of the sharks, it wasn't it, it wasn't a nurse shark, but one of the other species of shark just tore ass through this bait ball. And everyone's faces were just pressed up against the glass like they had never seen anything <laughs> like it before, which was which was interesting because you got to see a behavior that you wouldn't normally see. But I'm like, I'm like, these people are going to leave thinking that this happens like every single day. I mean, that's that's what's good about doing some of the training that we do. We'll, we'll do training in front of the public. It's to show these natural behaviors is to show like that these animals are impressive in their own ways and to show people that like, this is what they can do. Like not, not, it's not always entertaining or to be like, Oh, look how high this thing can jump or, you know what I mean? What are some of the behaviors that you, you're working with now in terms of some of the mammals that, cause I know you work primarily with mammals and we'll, we'll get into amphibians mm-hmm. a little bit down the line here, but I'm just curious, what sort of techniques do you use to teach them different behaviors or to, to bring out natural behaviors? So it definitely depends on the species, uh, the intelligence of the species, the, I want to say, 
their drive, I guess, if they're food motivated, they're going to be really easy to train. Uh, if they're not as food motivated, if they're more like you have to really convince them to come over and, and do stuff, then it's they're not that good of a like subject, I guess, to, to, to say the least. But most of the training we do are for medical purposes um, to be able to work voluntarily with them. So we're not having to like restrain them or knock them down all the time with like drugs because that could be, you know, detrimental to their health over time. Um, so a lot of the stuff is like voluntary blood draws. So we'll, we'll, um, get them in a, like a tamer or a squeeze. So they'll come into like a, like a, like a small building area and the walls will, will be able to squeeze in. Um, so they, they're, they are restrained, but it's like voluntarily, if that makes sense. Uh, like they know, like you, you work with it every day. So you, you move it more and more closer to them, like pushing, like what they will tolerate. And if they regress a bit or show a little like oh i don't like this then we pull back we wait wait till they're more comfortable with it and then squeeze them down again and then once they're squeezed down is when we can do more of the work with them uh the voluntary blood draws so like that's more with the dangerous animals with the tamers the pronghorn i get to they're free contact so i can go in with them um so they they're pretty good we, we just got them trained to uh, so i'll be in the front they'll be position one i'll say like i have their attention i'm feeding them and I say, no, the other person will be positioned to us, say touch, they'll touch their like rear end or wherever we're going to um, give them the injection. And we'll have like a fake needle thing with just like a paper clip at the end. Um, and then we'll say touch, we poke them with the, or we'll say poke, we poke them with the, the fake needle to get them used to the real thing. And then once the real thing comes, we'll be able to do it without having to restrain them and, and whatnot. Um, but some of the main uh, behaviors that we teach them target is obviously like the, the first thing we do. It's just a stick with a buoy at the end of it. And we get them to maneuver where we need them to go. Uh, shift is definitely a help, a helpful one. We need to move them on and off exhibit. Uh, station is a good one for, for them to stay at a place at, for a given amount of time that we need them to, they know if they wait there, they're going to get rewarded heavily. Touch is a big one. So we can do these voluntary blood works. Like I'm saying, um turn is a good one that we use not a lot of animals learn it uh but it's really good for um to be able to get a 360 view of the animal whenever we need to so if the vets if the vets come and say oh i need to see you know it's it's rear end or it's at the back of its leg we just say turn it'll turn and get a good look at it um some of them are trained for voluntary hoof trims so they'll put their hoof like our javelina which is a collared peccary um puts its hoof on a board and we're able to grind down its its feet with a dremel rather than knocking it out having to dremel it or like under anesthesia so most of the stuff we do is for um medical purposes but we do it we do it on exhibit so it's open to the public the people see it and they're you know they're i think they're just more amazed that they when they see us in there with them than than the actual stuff that we're doing with them <laughs> I don't think people realize the amount of work that goes into that. I mean, just trying to oh, get, yeah. trying to get a large mammal to, I mean, really any animal to cooperate with something that's, I mean, you, you want them to behave naturally, but in a situation that is really, really, I guess, very unnatural. Like, I've never seen a live javelina, but I know, I've known people who, I've known people who hunt them. And from what I understand, they're not really the most permissive animals. So I can only imagine how much effort it takes to, go into conditioning one to present its hoof to be trimmed that's got to take uh quite a bit of effort and and time 
Yeah, the javelin. Her name's Mesquite. She um she's interesting because she we've worked with her a lot. Like I've seen a lot of change in the last two years with her. She used to be like if you dropped your pen during the conditioning session, it's over, game over. She's yelling at you. She's barking at you. She's running around in circles. She's it's the end of the world for her because you dropped your pen. Something happened that was like she wasn't expecting. But now like I can. And it, it used to be like a quiet session, like there's no talking between the people that are there because she didn't like the extra noise. Now, you know, we can have a full on conversation while training this animal or, you know, we can just just talk about whatever. Um, while we train the animal, things can drop, you know, there's construction noise going on, like she's totally focused on what's going on. So I think uh, it just takes consistency. And I mean, same with our, we have, I work with spider monkeys and they used to get restrained like three years ago, three, four years ago, like caught with nets and stuff. It just wasn't, it wasn't a good um, experience for them, but that's the only way we could get, get them medically, you know, their, their yearly shots or just to make sure that they're doing okay. Now they're trained to go into a squeeze, like a little thing that shuts the door and we're able to ask them for their arm. They present their arm. We're able to give them shots uh like that way we can touch all over their arm if we need to they present their tail um and it's just a much easier way calmer way because they are skittish animals um so you have to it depends on the species so that's that's and i train all kinds of different animals so it's kind of cool to see how i can't take how i train one animal into training the next i really have to like kind of change my demeanor whether i'm training a bird or a a pronghorn or a pig so it's 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 all just different and i think that's what's so much fun about my job there's so many different animals in my area that i can make these like kind of special connections with and to see how and i've only you know i've only been a zookeeper for a couple years like two two and a half years i want to say now while other people have been you know zookeepers for a really long time so everything's kind of new to me i'm like oh this is really cool this is really cool like oh that's pretty standard i'm like well that's it's new to me so i think it's awesome (laughs) Let's back up a little bit. I, I want to kind of expand on something you, you mentioned earlier about. You, you said you did an internship with reptiles and amphibians, right? Yeah. Okay. Tell us about that, because one of the things that I'd always been kind of curious about is the approach that a zoo would have towards keeping herps as opposed to the private collector. I mean, what's the zoo's attitude towards keeping reptiles and amphibians so okay so i can only disclaimer i can only uh speak on the two zoos that i've worked at so my previous facility i was a reptile keeper so i saw firsthand how we do all the reptiles there and um we did they did an amazing job like uh, all the animals were in such great health they had really awesome exhibits like like not it was one of the most impressive reptile houses I've ever, I've ever seen it's it was at the Caldwell Zoo in East Texas like their anaconda exhibit is is massive it's like bigger than you know my frog room and my frog room's pretty big and um so the, yeah the, the way that the, the space is great like i think that most zoos do great with the space that a lot of hobbyists may like like obviously like the big time hobbyists they're going to dedicate a lot of space to their animals but like maybe like a just a guy getting a ball python at a petco throws it in a 10 gallon and thinks that's with some aspen bedding and thinks yeah it'll it'll live but a zoo will put a ball python in 
just this six foot enclosure with naturalistic plants and and whatnot and, and i think they do a great job at that in terms of other things i think that zoos do that hobbyists don't do as much is enrichment so i think that's a relatively new thing that's going on with reptiles that um it's like i'm not saying you're cruel if you don't give your animal enrichment but because they are like they're not these super intelligent creatures like a primate that you know we give our primates three enrichments uh, three things of enrichment a day because they need that mental stimulation um but i think certain like there's certain things that my zoo does for our reptiles that i'm like why are we even doing this like it's it's not going to do anything you know what i mean but um there's certain things that i'm that i've seen and firsthand where i'm like wow i didn't think a snake could could do this like um we use a lot of scent enrichment for our snakes and lizards and they actually go bananas over it so like quail or rabbit scented things um even though these like ball pythons or you know these smaller species of snakes have never ever eaten a rabbit because they can't but when they smell a rabbit and they're they're intrigued by it or even some of the, like the um the uh substrate enrichment if you put like a little pile of sand on its cocoa fiber it notices that something's different about it and will like kind of slither through it multiple times like i take care of some giant african hognose snakes here that you you can put a a tube in there like a little paper towel tube and it'll go through it a million times until it rips it's just like a weird i don't know why it, it likes it so much i'm not saying it's playing but it's definitely intrigued with what what's with what's in there but in terms of things that I think hobbyists do a little bit better is definitely the more, I think just the general, some of the general care, they just, they're more specified, especially if you're just a ball python guy or just a dart frog person or just a tree frog person, you're obviously gonna know more than a general zookeeper or general just zoo that's doing multiple different species. Cause it's just not practical for them to only do one species. You know, they're gonna wanna have you know, hundreds of species of reptiles, amphibians, if they can. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you have to have some, some generalities going because not, mm -hmm. every, I mean, let's be realistic here. People aren't going to come to a zoo to look at one species of animal. People like variety. I mean, even as hobbyists, we like variety. Unless they're you and you stand in front of a shark tank for six hours. Yeah. Well, we, to be fair, we did have several, that was kind of a community tank. We did have quite a <laughs> few species in there, but the enrichment angle is, that's something that I've had conversations with other hobbyists about incorporating into their husbandry. With, with reptiles, it's, it's I, hate, I hate to lump amphibians in with reptiles, but for all intents and purposes, everybody sort of does it. So as well, yeah. With, with reptiles, I mean, again, I think it depends on the species, but my, my bearded dragon, for example, I thought to myself, like, well, how could I, how could I give him enrichment? And right now, this, it, the weather's getting warmer here, and I'm building him an outdoor enclosure that he can hopefully spend the summer in out, outside. But I gave him a paper bag. I, I, had a, I had a paper bag, and I put it in the enclosure, and I sort of set it up as, it, you know, as if it were hide, and, and he loved it. He absolutely loved it. And then when he Did got he go in it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And when he got bored with it, I, I took it away, and I gave him a cardboard box with a hole in it. Just, just something that simple was enough enrichment that his behavior went from being kind of static to he was exploring more. He was making use of it. 
Uh, I had given him hides in the past that he really wasn't making much use of, and I gave him the paper bag, and he was in and out of that thing constantly. So, and I'm a I'm a big believer in enrichment. Like I I think it's a I think it's a really good thing, and I'm not saying that people need to go out of their way to provide you know, like what a zoo does for their animal. They don't have to have like a set, like we give our reptiles enrichment every day. Like that's, I'm not saying you have to change it up every day, but even like the smallest thing, like you're saying like a paper bag, or even, I think people do it without, without really knowing, like if you change their hide around, or if you reset up their tank, like if you disinfect it, like you should be like, you know, every couple of months or whatever you're doing, re- put new sand in there. You're putting a different way, you build the rocks up in your bearded dragon enclosure. If that's how you do it. Like that's enrichment. That's something different for him to look at. Like, oh, okay, now we're over here. Yeah, I think that with with reptiles, it works very well because they 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 function on a high. I, mean, I hate to say this, but they do seem to function on a higher level than amphibians. Plus, with amphibians, especially with dart frogs, we tend to keep them in pretty sophisticated enclosures where there's a lot going on. You'll have misting systems come on i mean obviously it can be predictable because most of it's set on timers but you're going to have you know plants are going to grow they're going to take off over the course of a couple of weeks hunting prey is also a pretty good means of enrichment like especially with dart frogs that are constantly foraging for springtails and Mm -hmm. uh, fruit flies within the substrate and whatnot i actually saw someone do a this was a pretty cool trick they took a coconut that had been cut in half and it had a little hole in one side and they took a bunch of fruit flies, they stuck them in the coconut, and they rubber-banded it together so that the flies could only come out of one hole. So the dart frogs had to work a little bit more to get the prey. And to me, that seemed like a great source of enrichment. But was there any kind of amphibian en- enrichment that you guys offered, or was it just strictly reptiles? I was just about to mention that what you just said is kind of like what we did. I think that guy went... That guy went super hard at, at that one because there's a either there's a twice easier thing that you could do for that. You take one of those plastic Easter eggs and you and you poke a hole in that and you put the fruit flies in that and you put that in the in the enclosure. And and the ones that my previous zoo were pretty they got that enrichment like once a month, but they knew that those eggs meant food. And it was so funny because those dart frogs would just go right over to those eggs and wait for those flies to come out and just start taking them off. (laughs) People don't realize how easily you can condition pretty much anything, especially when it comes to food. And it's funny that you mentioned the Easter egg every year at, at Easter, the, when the Easter bunny comes, he hides an Easter egg in one of the dart frog tanks and my kids love it. (laughs) And there's no, there's no candy or anything in it, but I put, you know, well, excuse me, the Easter bunny put one in and we just we just left it there and i thought to myself i was like you know what i was like it's this weird shape thing i was like i'll leave it in there it could offer some kind of enrichment for them it's a little bit different and then once they're tired of it or whatever i'm tired of looking at it they'll get rid of it but yeah i don't know how intelligent dart frogs really are i don't i'm not um that inclined with that i'm not that smart about that kind of topic but i have noticed and i've seen with other people that if they just if they you if you put something different in there, whether it's a rock or like an egg, like you're saying, just something weird that that's not normally in there, they will gravitate towards it and kind of check it out. They're like, huh, what is this? And and even if they hate it, like this is this um, learning about enrichment, you know, from working here, it doesn't always have to be a positive thing. Like if the animal reacts negatively, that's still a 
a natural behavior. That's still something that ha- that would happen. Like their day, their days don't always have to be that great. You know what I mean? I'm not saying it's a, it's going to hurt them or harm them or stress them out to the point where they're going to die, but definitely something that's like, Oh, that looks weird. I'm, I'm not going to go near that. That's scary. Or like, Oh, that smells bad. I don't like that. I'm going to walk away from that. Like it's, it's still enriching. It's still them interacting with it. So it doesn't always have to be something that hits a home run. And it's a hundred percent such a great thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't think that you can consistently provide things that are going to be, I, I hate to use the word pleasurable, but we'll, we'll just say pleasant. Mm-hmm. I mean, li- like things that like food and, and stuff like that, because pretty much everything gets pleasure out of eating. Yep. But uh, another another podcast, Bill, Bill Strand, he hosts the Chameleon podcast, and he made some good points about normal stressors during the course of the day, meaning animals are going to run across normal stressful situations in the wild and we kind of take some of that away in captivity now obviously you don't want to expose an animal to a chronic stressor to the point where it becomes ill or or, but i mean let's just say that you have an animal outside all right seeing a hawk fly overhead that's a stressor but it's still some form of enrichment because it does replicate something that an animal would feel in the wild yeah and if they get away from that stressor maybe that makes them feel better like oh i accomplished something today like you know like i was able to get away from this or i was able to conquer my fear or something like that you know what i mean i think that i don't know if they're that deep of thinkers but that's just the way i think i i don't think that they're that deep thinkers at all i, I it's 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 hard to quantify it, it's one of those things yeah. where it's very very it's it's hard to be objective because you can't quantify it how, how do you measure a dart frog's iq how, how do you measure a pronghorn's IQ. How do you measure a person's IQ? You know what I mean? It's just, I, I just feel like more and more, it seems to be that zoos are sort of setting this bar that you have to sort of give every living thing the benefit of the doubt. I mean, if it doesn't make, if it doesn't take advantage of it, that's fine. If it does, then great. I, mean, I don't know if that's something that you've noticed in your uh, career or not, but that's something that I've heard from people. I think mostly what people need to stop doing when they come to a zoo or, or look at it or any animal for, for that matter is to stop anthropomorphizing it. Like they're given, which means, you know, giving it human emotions. And like, I, I see, I see it all the time in our comments, like, Oh, it, the pronghorn or, or the gorilla or whatever. It, it looks so sad it looks so sad it's or it's alone it's lonely it's like well maybe it's a like like our jaguar we don't put them they're they're solitary creatures we're not going to put them both out together that would just end horribly so when people are like oh they're sad you know they're calling like they're calling it i'm like no he calls at the same time every day because he's hungry and this is the time we bring him in he's not calling because he misses his girlfriend or he's sad he's alone like so and same, I mean, same as like, if they look sad, it's like, they have the same facial expression, no matter what, the, no matter what they're feeling. So, uh, it's, it's kind of, that's what's the, the, probably one of the most frustrating things when that I deal with at the zoo and just in life in general, like people anthropomorphizing animals. Yeah. I can't stand that. I, I mean, I, I, every living thing has its own ways about it. And I feel like trying to, yeah. trying to look at something through the same lens as we would. It's just, it's, it's not, it's not accurate. It, it's, it's completely apples and oranges. I mean, we can, as, as custodians of their care, obviously we're, we're beholden to take care of them in the best ways possible. But I'll tell you, man, like when I go to a zoo and I, I told you, I'll just, I'll sit there and I'll just listen to people. And 
the nonsense that comes out of people's mouths like oh he's lonely oh he's sad in there it's like no this is this is like this animal is best suited alone it's not a social animal the way people are but we always have to look at things through that lens and you're right it's just i mean i'm just flat out saying it just it it's one of those things that really pisses me off and I mean, I'm not saying that they that animals don't have emotions. Don't get me wrong. I I I'm a witness to this every day. I see how animals, you know, go through their different, you know, whatever it's mood swings or just they don't want to shift that day or they just feel they're more frustrated. They get more frustrated with conditioning. Like animals have certain feelings as well and certain emotions as well. I'm just think I'm just saying they're not the they're they're not in the same way as us. Like a good example is Kevin Richardson. He's the, he's called the lion whisperer. He's this guy in South Africa that lives, literally lives with lions. Like he just walks out there and can greet lions all the time. And he's, and people always ask him, Hey, do these animals love you? And that's the thing I get a lot too. Like, do these animals love you? I'm like, I really no, they don't. They're not like, they're not expressing love like that. Like that's not, I don't think that love really exists in, in nature like that to that extent. And I might be, and I might get a lot of hate for that, but I just think it's more raw and cut. So if that, that lion will not think twice to kill Kevin, if he really wanted to, because Kevin's getting in on his food or getting in on a mate. If he thinks that that's what's going to happen, like a lion will kill his brother just to kill his brother. He's not going to feel bad about it the next day. You know what I mean? Yeah, I totally understand what you mean. And like you said, when you, when you tell people that they don't like it, and yeah, then they it. get, yeah, well, people do not like to hear that, even though it's just, it's, it's a matter of fact. I mean, yeah, it's just, nature. yeah, I mean, just to mention lions, when a new, when a male lion takes over another pride, he'll kill the cubs of the oh, yeah. previous lion to get rid of all a that. A lot blood. of animals do that. Yeah. A lot of animals do that. <laughs> and then people, and the same thing, people say, oh, well, that's such a mean thing. Like, well, it's not, it's, we're not thinking in human terms anymore. Or why aren't you saving that? animal like when you're videotaping an animal killing another animal well, why aren't you why aren't you saving it like that then i'm going to take food away from that animal like that's not that's not going to happen you know what i mean like that's nature i know i know it's just the the whole sorry we i know we went we, we went down a rabbit hole i we, promise we'll get we back on track but we dog legged it's okay it's okay i just i i find human beings bizarre i find our behaviors to be very very strange and we expect everything else on the planet to behave the way we do. And when someone tells us, no, we don't like it. And we pitch a hissy fit. Well, I'm just so, I'm just so torn because my whole life, I just like, I'm part of, part of the, part of conservation is education. You have to be able to educate people, but it's just like, I feel like this job has almost ruined that for me because I've just seen the worst in people sometimes uh, with how they treat animals and how I, and I just obviously on the internet too, how people treat animals. And it's like, I don't, I don't like, I, I'd rather spend my time behind the scenes than out in the public talking to the public. You know, obviously I like, if people are into it and I can tell they're into it, I will hundred percent talk your ear off about pronghorn about anything. But if it's just like, if I can tell that you're not an animal lover or, or you, you don't care, like it's just something, or I, or I physically see you throwing rocks at an animal or something like that, or pennies I've seen. Then I'm I'm not going to have any remorse, man. I'm not going to hold back. So, um, it's tough. It's a tough bridge to walk on because I want to help people. I want to conserve. I want to uh, educate people. But at the same time, I don't think that they're really they really care at the end of the day. I understand what you mean. It can be 
it's frustrating. Yeah, it can be frustrating and you can get jaded because just like anything else, everything in life is dealing with people unless you live out in the middle of nowhere, which I aim to be at some point. But it's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 I think the most difficult part about working with animals has to be the, the, the human aspect of it because very few jobs that you've left alone with animals, I mean, outside of the realms of just doing field research and, and things like that. But even when you're in a zoo, you're, there's more people around you than, than animals. Yep. hundred <laughs> percent. Well, I want, I want to bring, bring it back here to, uh, yeah, let's do it, let's <laughs> to, do it. <laughs> to the original topic. So my bad. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, just so everyone knows, we, we, we kind of talked off air for a bit about how we weren't going to go down this rabbit hole, but we ended up getting down there anyway. So I, I promised we'd come back. So I, I want to cover some of the species that you've worked with personally and professionally. Can you tell us about some of the amphibian species that you've uh, had under your care? Okay, so under my zoo care or under my personal care? Why don't Just we start both? with start with the zoo and then we'll get into your, your personal collection. Okay, zoo definitely won't be as impressive as my personal, I would say. Um, at my previous job, the reptile position I was in, it was mainly reptiles. They didn't have a lot of amphibians. Um, which I think that's, that's most zoos that you'll see. It's going to be mostly reptiles just because I feel like their, their care is a little bit simpler depending on what you're, what you're doing. Um, but yeah, I've worked with some dart frogs, uh, professionally in zoos, mainly just the Azurius and the green and blacks, uh, Rodus. Uh, but I've worked with firebelly toads. I've worked with some salamanders like tiger salamanders, um, cave salamanders, Dusky salamanders, uh, Panamanian golden frogs for a short stint. That was pretty cool. Um, let's see. Pac-Man frogs, tomato frogs, pixie frogs, uh, leopard frogs. So nothing nothing too out of the realm of, of craziness. But I'd say that's, that's about it for professionally. Um, in terms of personally... I work with, I think, six different locales of Pamilio. Uh, I, the Rio Bronco, the Punta Vejas, Cristobal. Um, I'm actually going to pull out my list just just to be just to be so I'm not having too much dead air. <laughs> so okay, here we go. Starting from the top, I got for my Pamilio. I have I have a trio of Cusipin. I have a pair of El Dorado, a pair of Rio Bronco. I have two male Punta Laurels that I'm looking for a female. If anyone has a female out there, hit me up. I need one. Uh, I got a pair of Punta Vejas, a pair of Cristobal. And then for the Tinctorius, I have a pair of Alanis, a group of Bacuas, a trio of Azurius, a pair of Citronella, a pair of Patricia, a pair of Powder Blue, and a pair of Katari River. Um, other Dendrobates, I have some Costa Rican Aratus. I have the Guyana banded Lucamelis, a good group of them. I have a trio of Rio Coscajal Aratus. For the Ranatomea, I have Amazonica and Vanzellini. And for the Phyllobates, I have the bicolored green legs, the Aratonia, and the mint Terribilis. And then I have your favorite, the Santa Isabels. Everyone take a drink. <laughs> take a drink. Every time he says Epipedobates, you have to take a drink. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's a new game. It's my favorite species, and it's I knew someone was going to call me on that at some point, and I'm happy that it was <laughs> you, Mason. <laughs> yeah, it. 
I, I noticed that from like day one. I was like, oh, he says that a lot. That's funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we all have they our are own cool. They're a cool frog, man. I like them. Yeah, they're great. And it's funny because if you if you have someone who's not who knows nothing about dart frogs, you can make like, oh wow, I want to show you my most delicate dart frog, and they're so <laughs> tiny. And look, look at what I've got them. I've gotten them to produce. People are like, wow. I'm like, nah, it's easy. It's like, it, like, it's like breeding mold on stale bread. It, that's how easy it is. Yeah, dude. What do you, what do you do? You sell most of your tadpoles. What do you what are you doing? No, I um, I've I've held back everyone. I I I did um. I, I did release an episode about epipedibates that I kind of went through my whole personal experience, but, um, okay. I don't, I, I had difficulty getting the tadpoles to metamorphose and to stay, uh, alive past the point where they, they had absorbed the tails. And I ended up changing my feeding regimen around. I ended up feeding them a diet that had more protein. And once I did that, then I got more frogs morph out and, and stay alive. So, by the time all was said and done, they they were very productive. They produced a lot of clutches. They produced a lot of tadpoles, but very few of those tadpoles made it from, you know, point A to point B alive. So the ones that I did have come out and do very well, I ended up just keeping. So the original trio, the original trio that I had a while back, I ended up breaking it up. And uh, the female, after I broke it up, the female ended up passing away. I don't know if it was just from the constant breeding or what have you, but I, I, I ended up separating her out and then she un- unfortunately passed. And then I, I kept, yeah, I know it's, it was. And finally, when I had just gotten the, the recipe working pretty well, but I kept right now, I think I have maybe four, f- four offspring of that trio. And I introduced another male into the equation, but I think I ended up having them all mature out males. But I noticed a big difference with more protein for the tadpoles. I ended up switching them from just like spirulina and fish flakes to, believe it or not, Rapashi Beardy Buffet. I Oh, yeah. I remember you talking about that. Yeah. That's what I got the most improvement from because they just weren't, they weren't thriving. Are, I mean, are you, keep, do you have yours reproduced and are you saving yours or what are you doing with, with yours? Yeah, so I sell locally mainly to the exotic, like mom and pop exotic pet shops here. I just sell like a little bit above wholesale to them, um, just to like kind of grow, just to grow the hobby, you know, here locally. There's not a lot of uh, frog keepers here, um, and I think that they're like one of the perfect starter amphibians or dart frogs in general. Um, but yeah, they're my female was breeding; she was laying like 15 eggs every week. And that got pretty, like, I had a big tub full of them. And it was just, there was a lot of tadpoles in there. And um, and then she took a break, thank God, because I was moving around a bit. Like, I moved from an apartment to a house. And she's just stopped laying for probably three months or so. And I was like, that gave me time to, like, sell all the ones I already had and, get, and not get so backed up. And now she's breeding pretty consistently again. Uh, laying like 10 to 12 eggs every like but now it's like it's like every two weeks now so it's more manageable so it's not i'm not overwhelmed and i definitely have means to sell like i i I can like i have people to sell them to i'm not just getting backed up and overwhelmed with them thank god if i ever do though i might have to just pull the eggs or something like that i'm not sure (laughs) how are you raising your tadpoles 
I raise them depending on the species. I raise my I raise my tinks communally, as well as the Santa Isabels, um, the and the Aratus and the Leucomelus. I raise them all communally, but I don't put them. You know, I keep my Leucomelus, Leucomelus, Aratus, Aratus, tinks with tinks. I was gonna try and separate all the tinks, and I don't think that's too many too many different uh, tubs. But um, for some of my other frogs, like uh, my tinks that don't produce a lot, I definitely go the single cup because I want those to come out. Uh, like I want to for sure like make it like I feel like when you do it communally, you're kind of under the influence, like under the impression that they may predate on each other, they may start eating each other. So that's why with the Santa Isabel, that was kind of like my guinea pig because they just lay so much. I was like, okay, let's see how this goes. And they were doing great. So I was like, okay, let's try the Tinctorius. They were doing great. I did see some tail nipping, but that was because I was putting them in too small with the larger ones. So I just, now I have a system where once they freshly come out of that little egg sack, I put them in like a smaller communal tub. Once they start swimming really, really good, um, I put them in with the like medium to large size ones and they're able to like swim away from them if they need to. And there's plenty of Java moss to hide under and leaf litter and stuff like that. So I've got it down to a T now, I think, where they're coming out and not eating each other and not doing anything wrong. But yeah, I do communally um, for the most part. And I think it's working great. They, they come out bigger, they come out stronger, faster. Um, the colors are looking good. So I think I think that's the way to go. There's different approaches. I know some people like to do communal for certain reasons. There's certain people like to do solitary for others. I know people who like to produce a lot of froglets for sale like to do the individual because then there really isn't any risk. But you're not the first person that's told me that they've gotten larger, healthier froglets from raising communally, even though they might, I guess, especially in in the case of tanks. But if you have, say, let's just say it's a large clutch, say it's just 20, Mm -hmm. as opposed to having all 20 morph out, maybe you get five morph out, but those five are much healthier than the the 20 that you would have gotten had you let them all go. Yeah. The single cups just, just take up a lot of room, man. And I, and I don't, don't have the space for all those cups. Um, and especially I, you know, I live in El Paso, it's a desert, so the water dries up pretty fast. Uh, so that was kind of annoying to have to keep refilling each individual cup like every other day. Um, so the communal tank base, it's easier to, you know, just add water to that than to add water to a hundred different cups. But the red tomato, I definitely keep individually just because I don't produce that many of them. So it'd be nice to have them all morph out. Um, and I think most people do them individually. I haven't heard of anyone doing red tomato, uh, communally. That's a new one on me. I've never heard of anyone doing it that yeah. way either. I'm not sure. So, but I've had success with it. So if it's not broke, I'm not going to fix it. <laughs> no, you go with what works. Every, everybody's methodology is different. And I've had people ask me, well, what's the best way to go about this? And I say, honestly, I don't know. I, I know <laughs> the way that I, I, I have my methods for things and I have yeah. my challenges. I don't, I don't always succeed. But again, I'm not a big, big breeder person. I mean, I only had, um, mm-hmm. I have two, I'm trying to think now. I have a pair of bicolors which produces very, very sporadically. I just acquired another, a third one, which I haven't been able to sex yet. I really wanted to introduce that one into the pair. Hopefully that having a trio dynamic would instigate breeding, but 
this one's pretty flighty. So I don't want to, I was kind of hoping that it would be a little bit more bold, but this one's actually pretty shy. So I don't want to create that dynamic and put pressure on an already stressed frog. Yeah, that's the thing with Terribilis. I feel like they stress out easier than other frogs that I've noticed. Um, but I, I know a lot of people keep them in groups. I keep mine in groups. My I have four uh, bicolors. Yours, yours are the green legs too, right? Yes. Yeah, and they do. They're like they're not. You ever see any kind of territorial behavior from them, or no? No, never. I yeah. I have a, I have them in a, a pretty large exoterra, thirty six by eighteen by eighteen. I think it is. It's it's one of the larger exoterras, and I've seen wrestling from my males before. Like not like hardcore, like rolling around on the ground, but like one will be calling, and then the other one will just kind of like stand on top of him and call at the same time that he's calling so i don't know that has to be it can't be like anything but some kind of territorial thing like but i don't they have plenty of room i don't know why they're they're doing it <laughs> i've seen some wrestling with my terabellus with with my mints the bicolor is just a pair so there really isn't any male uh, okay. there, 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 there isn't really a male uh dynamic in there anyway but i have seen my i have seen my bicolors toss each other around a little bit but I was never really able to sex that trio. I think I, I might have had three males. I'm not quite 100% sure because I've seen, it's hard to keep track of. There's one that, that's really large that calls and then the other two about the same size and I can't quite tell them apart. But it's it's nothing like what you see with Tinctorius. And it's that's one of the reasons why I, I try to discourage people from starting out with Tinctorius is because of that aggression. I had two, I, I had a, I had two. All right, I ended up buying what I was told was two males from a vendor, and they ended up being female. I got them home after a show, and I opened it up and I saw the the profile at the back of the frog. I was like, "Oh boy!" I said, "All right, maybe." I said, "Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I mean I looked at the toe pads. I'm like, this, these look female, but let me just give it the benefit of the doubt." And as soon as I paired the two up, that they they went right at it, and I had to separate them immediately. So the territoriality in the phylobates in my, my opinion is like is it's it can be there but it's nothing compared to tinctorius no yeah I, I agree i think phylobates is a pretty safe safe bet for a group especially if you want a, a big group of frogs or something like that they do great i mean just like a troy troy is like a thousand mint terribilis in one tank <laughs> and they are breeding for him like rabbits the guy's a freaking gold mine over there I know, I know. It's funny because we were talking about it. I was like, I can't get mine to produce. And he goes, well, you try this. I'm like, hmm. And then like a week later, he's pulling like a six pack of Petri dishes out of his enclosure with eggs. But... Yeah, his, he, he's the frog father for sure, in my opinion. <laughs> I want to talk about a couple of other things that you did in non-zoo, non-captive conditions. Specifically, I want to start out with your trip to Belize. What, what was it like seeing Ooh. some of the, the native amphibians in belize so that was pretty cool we didn't see too many uh amphibians we saw a lot more megafauna a lot of a lot of larger animals um and we were focusing so the primary it was a we were studying abroad it was a biodiversity uh study so we were capturing and recapturing uh rodent species in like this just the forest area the jungle area there and tagging them and then like the next student group like the following year sees if they're see how sees if they can capture and recapture the same ones um and it's just like 
basically doing like a rough estimate of the population um, of the rodents there in the area. Uh, but we also did some conservation work with the Central America river turtle there, which is, I think, the most endangered species of turtle in the world. If I'm not too, if I'm not, if I, if I'm, if I'm right there, that's what it was at the time. I don't know if it's changed. That was a few years ago. But as, in terms of frogs, we went, we went night, um, a lot of night hikes, and we saw some glass frogs. Uh, I saw a giant cane toad, uh, a Gulf Coast toad. I think. And a little those little like little tiny shovel nose toads, um, if you know what those look like, they're like itty bitty, like the, they're smaller than like a dart froglet. It's like the tiniest thing, and they have these little cute faces and a little shovel nose, and they just live under the dirt. And they are pretty cool. I have a picture of them. I can send them to you after this. But um, yeah, not too many frog species. We I was really disappointed. I wanted to see some red-eyed tree frogs. I heard that they could be found in parts of that area. Um, but we didn't see any. But we saw a couple of glass frogs, which that was cool. We were also there in the winter time too, so I don't, it wasn't too rainy there at the time. So I don't think it was good good time to go for amphibians. Was there anything down there that you saw that you didn't expect? I mean, I I've had guests who've been to uh, like parts of Central America and they've found things like. I had a conversation with one person who found Pamilio basking in like this like hundred degree spot, like right on the ground. And I mean, was there anything out of the ordinary that you saw? I mean, you didn't see a lot of frogs, but like with the toads or anything else, did you see anything odd? Not too many. Like I, I don't even. I know we. I know you were specifically asking about dart frogs, but I don't think there's any dart frogs native to Belize, in my opinion. Maybe there's some like that just kind of come in on the borders, but. I don't think there's any that are like famous for being in Belize. I'm not sure, but um, that cane toad that I saw, it was huge. First off, it was probably the biggest I ever seen. I'm from Florida; they're everywhere there, um, and I've seen some real big ones there. But this one was probably the biggest one I've ever seen, and it was in this hole that we would pass like every day. Every day we'd walk and we'd see this giant toad in the hole, and he was just sitting there. And he was, and then after like three or four days, I was like, I wonder if he's stuck. Like maybe he can't, it was a pretty deep hole. It was probably like two, two and a half feet of like, there, and it didn't look like he could just like hop out of there. You know what I mean? And, and so sometimes with our, um, when we were catching the mice, right. And sometimes, unfortunately in our traps, they, they do die. If, um, if like, like ants got to him sometimes, which was really not a fun sight to see because we, we would just set them up in the, like in these little like, boxes and they would go in for the food and then the latch shuts and then we go catch them the next day like go check all the traps the next day um so with, with one of them that died i actually ended up throwing it down the hole <laughs> the toad ate it in like half a second uh it was it was a pretty cool sight to see um and i was like all right i don't know if you're stuck down there i'll help you out and give you a little snack <laughs> i didn't want to touch it just because i knew of the toxins so uh, that was a pretty cool experience and a little odd, odd thing I saw there. That's definitely an odd encounter. <laughs> <laughs> it was cool. What about your work in the Everglades? You were a, you did, you did boat tours through the Everglades, right? Yeah, I did. I was a first mate on a big, like 50 foot catamaran in the heart of the Everglades National Park. Uh, I was me and my best friend from childhood. Uh, and he was the captain and I was the first mate and it was super fun. Did that for a summer. 
uh, definitely was cool to like, come down from school. I went to school in Kentucky, so it was like nice to come home and be in, be in the Florida sun and be able to go do that every day. Um, so yeah, we saw all kinds of cool stuff doing that. What kind of wildlife did you run into out there on a regular basis? Dolphins, manatees, all kinds of sports fish like tarpon, snook. Uh, we saw big schools of black drums, stingrays jumping out of the water, sharks jumping out of the water, um, all kinds of birds, of course, Burmese pythons, <laughs> uh, larger mammals like deer and uh, bears, stuff like that. It's it's The Everglades is just a hub. If you ever want to just go find some animals, I feel like that's the best place to go. Like sometimes I've been all kinds of national parks all over the U.S. and sometimes they don't see a, a single animal. <laughs> that's why, like, a, and a lot of people go to national parks to go to like get out in nature, smell the fresh air, and to see the beautiful views. And don't get me wrong, that's all nice, but I want to see some animals. Like that's what I want to see uh, when I go to places. So, and it's I don't always I don't always want to see them in the zoo. Like my favorite thing to do is to work with the animal in captivity and then to see it in its natural environment. It's just like so amazing to see. And that's what I wanted to do. And it's, and I always tell people, I was like, you want to see animals go to the swamps of the Everglades and just go walk around through there. You'll find all kinds of stuff. Obviously we saw gators and crocodiles too. I should, I should have said that. We saw those all the time. (laughs) I drove to, I drove from New York to Key West about, about eight that uh, well, it was about 16 years ago and one of the more memorable things that i recall from that trip was seeing an american crocodile there's this one road that i think it's called route one or something like that that goes all the way down through florida into the keys and we were driving one yeah and we were driving over this sandbar and my wife and i we just got married at the time and i looked over and just for like a split second i see an american crocodile just take off go back into the water and it was i was like wow i can't believe i actually just saw that but it's definitely it's definitely a different experience when you run into something in the wild even if it's just for a split second yeah crocodiles are you you gotta watch out for those in florida like the gators are like big old puppy dogs really and i'm not saying for people to go down to florida and go touch one because that definitely won't go well for you but crocodiles if i was kayaking down a canal in florida and i saw a crocodile i would poop my pants for sure. I'd, I'd go straight for the shore. <laughs> yeah, this wasn't a, a small crocodile either. This, I mean, it wasn't gigantic, but this was probably like from, God, from snout to tail tip, maybe an eight foot crocodile. It was pretty, it was, I mean, oh, for no, me, it was that's big. big. That's a big, no, that's still a big animal. Like there, I've heard horror stories in canals, like I'm talking about, of people getting their kayaks flipped by crocodiles. And it's not always because they're trying to eat you. They're just like, get out of my waters. You know what I mean? That's, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. There's going, growing up in Florida was definitely the highlight of my life so far. <laughs> There's just all kinds of stuff there to do. What about some of the non-native species, the, the invasives there? Because the, the invasive issues in Florida has become a real stumbling block. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, at least in, in America, the hobby at large is becoming really adversely tainted. affected by yeah tainted is a good word it's becoming tainted by a lot of the invasive species that have been released or somehow made their way out into the well everglades is a perfect spot do you have any thoughts on that in terms of 
how we can sort of, I guess, develop the hobby in a way that's going to, I guess maybe I guess I don't think we can fix the problem, but I mean, what what what, do you have, what are your thoughts on it? Do I have some thoughts? All right, Dan, let me let me sit you down here. <laughs> uh, so obviously, I'm super passionate about this because it's from where I'm from, and I it's it's interesting. You know, I'm only 26 years old, but growing up in Florida, I saw the changes from when I was a boy to when you know, now that I'm a man and I've seen the changes that these invasive species have had on the environment and how detrimental they've been on to the environment. And so it's like, I, it's like that path I told you about earlier. Like I'm walking a weird road where I want to educate people, but I also hate people. So this is the same thing. I'm walking this weird line because I'm so into conservation. And I so believe that these, these Burmese pythons, these tegus, like the iguanas, blah, 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 all these, all these invasive species. There's so, there's so many, there's hippos, there's macaques. Like there's so many species that people probably don't even know are in Florida. Like they should just put a bubble around the Everglades and just throw at anything else in there that they want at this point. Cause there's just so many things there and there's nothing that we can do in the long run. But um, I've seen it. So I'm, I'm walking this rope of diehard conservationists. Yeah. We need to eradicate these things as fast as we can. And we need to educate people and we need to make some kind of laws against these large constrictors. And then I'm on the side of being a hobbyist and know that there's some really, really good people out there that have these animals as pets and they're doing a good job at it. Um, so it's a, it's a weird line. I, I know, I know that the media really corrupts things. So that's, what's really going on here. Like the media will, get a story and run with it. So that's, that's like it for anything. Um, you have all these people out here that are Python hunting and they're on YouTube and they have millions of subscribers, millions of viewers watching their videos of the, the like there was one where a guy pulled out a, a Python out of a sewer, but then that video got debunked because they're, it's essentially this guy that's taking the same Burmese Python that he caught, like he actually caught it but he's just putting it in different areas around Florida and going, Oh, look, it's under your house. Oh, look, it's in your sewer. When they're just putting it there for the video, the two second clip that they're getting, the news sees it and says, Oh, we have banned these things. We have to ban all snakes, ban all reptiles, ban everything. So that this doesn't happen. And I truly think that the government has like, they have, they have a, the right ideas maybe but they're not executing it well like yes there needs to be some kind of regulation on these large constrictors because florida is like we've seen the burmese pythons i did my senior thesis paper on burmese pythons and invasive species in florida 98 percent of all mammal species have declined <laughs> like that's not that's not a made up made up statistic like you could drive down alligator alley right now and not see one single roadkill think about that they have possums raccoons armadillos you know bird all kinds of birds you will see zero roadkill on the side of the road because the the burmese pythons are eating them all not they're not eating the roadkill they're just eating all the animals they're not getting hit by cars so it's 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 incredible like what's what's going on down there but i also think that they're doing it the wrong way they're just kind of banning things left and right because they can and not actually like listening to the people that do take care of them really well um 
I don't know if I'm making a lot of sense. I'm just kind of on a tangent right now, but no, it, it makes perfect sense. And it's look for anyone out there who's listening. I understand that everyone has different opinions about this and, and it's, it's really just a, it's a very difficult situation. I have always advocated for a more open and frank dialogue between people who determine policy, people who enforce policy, and people who are the recipients of that, you know, of that legislation. So I think that as hobbyists, we really have to hold ourselves to a high standard because if we don't, we're going to get lumped in with people who are irresponsible. And this this goes for everybody. I mean, the, the, the large constrictor bans, I, I, I don't believe in banning anything. Because you know what, regardless of what you ban, it's still going to exist. I mean, just for for example, like here in New York, marijuana was just legalized. Well, marijuana has been here forever, whether it was legal or not. So how do you how do you get people to be responsible? I just I don't buy the fact that if you're going to outright ban something, I mean, number one, you you are going to have a lot of responsible people who are going to be put out by it. You are going to have a lot of people who make their livings that are completely put out by it. On the same and on the other side of the coin, though, yeah, you have a lot of you can't really say that you support animal species in a certain area and then just let them get wiped out by something that shouldn't be here in the first place. I, I don't know what the right answer is, but I, I, I can't imagine that the real hard knee jerk reactions on either end are going to, you know, reach an end that's going to be productive to what we want to go with you know where, where we want to go with this yeah it's it's really tough it's really tough um uh because of like i said it's it's just, it's it's contradicting it's a really touchy subject you know and a lot of people are really passionate about it and i'm on don't don't get me wrong i'm i'm, I'm on it's tough to be on a side with me because of just of what i believe in with my conservation background because I've seen what what it has done, but I also believe that there are good people. You had a guy on, I think, from Australia, correct? Yes, yes, I did. I had uh, that was Dean from Vivscape. Yeah, and he talked about. I liked his policy. I liked how Australia is doing it because they're just like Florida. If I put a Burmese pipe in Australia, I'm pretty sure it would live and probably ransack the entire country, um, because it's just it, it's got pretty good climate there. Uh, for reptiles, obviously, there's all kinds of them there. But I think what what he was saying, correct me if I'm wrong, was they can only keep local species. And there's even if you wanted to go to the the, the Petco, like local Petco or whatever, and buy a leopard gecko, you needed to have some form of permit for it, whether it just be like a class A, easy little thing you have to pay like 15 bucks for. It's still it's still like takes away the impulse buying of an animal is am i on the right page there correct yeah there's a there's legislation that says you have to have a certain you have to be a certain age and you have to file for basically the equivalent of a permit and you have to keep a ledger of of how the animal is being kept you know is it alive is it dead did it die did it escape and then at any i mean at any given point the authorities can I guess, audit you to, to check what your records are. But the idea is that you can't introduce anything and what you do keep, you, you're 
kind of you're really responsible for because all your information is 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 on it. You know what I mean? You don't just anonymous. I mean, I guess you you could, but you don't just anonymously purchase an animal and keep it without having some sort of a record out there. Yeah, and I and I I don't think that we should be you know restricted to just local species. I think that it's okay to have exotics, but I want there to be more regulation on it like like they have in Australia. Like that really opened like I didn't know that until that episode of the podcast. I was like, wow, that's actually a really like I think that's a really good idea to take away because I'm so sick of impulse buying or the throwaway pets like leprechauns, ball pythons, bearded dragons, just something that you get live for a year and think it did okay. Like no, that's not how it works. And and I think that would really deter the like just Joe Schmoes that just want to take get these Burmese pythons and then release them. And I and I'm not saying that that is the reason why there's a Burmese python problem. There was a hurricane that destroyed a breeding facility that launched thousands of Burmese pythons into the Everglades and they reproduce rapidly year round. They don't have a breeding season here. They breed year round uh, so that they will reproduce fast and they have no natural predators. So there's, that's why they spread out so fast. But the media likes to say it was all from irresponsible pet owners that just released them all in there. I'm not saying that people didn't do that because I'm sure people did do that, but it's not the main reason why. That's one of the aspects of it that people don't really want to consider because the media, look, like it or not, if you have large constrictors, the media already has an adverse attitude towards you. You're, you're, you're money for them because they run a story about large constrictors. You get the public's attention because it's, it's a whole big spectacle. They put the danger aspect on it. Look, no one's going to be running a story about invasive Cuban tree frogs because they don't eat people's cats. And they're probably just as big, if not a bigger problem than the large constrictors. But you're right. People don't, you don't get that angle there because no one talks about it. Yeah, there was, I can't remember which hurricane it was, but that facility that got wiped out. Look, if you have our arbitrary number here, but say you have several hundred breeding age Burmese pythons just released all at once in an area that is completely conducive to their breeding, yeah, you're going to have a problem. That goes without saying, but that was not an intentional release that people plan. That's not one irresponsible person taking a berm and going out to the Everglades and dumping it, which is obviously extremely irresponsible, but people don't get that. That was that was an an accident. That didn't happen on purpose because of someone's irresponsibility. It, it happened because of... of uh, of a, of a horrific, a horrific weather event. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, you know, the, I think the very first Burmese Python in the Everglades was found in 1980. So obviously that was way before the hurricane destroyed the facility. I think, I believe that hurricane was hurricane Andrew, which was in 1992 or 93 that released like 10 or 20,000 of them into the Everglades. Like it's just so many among other things too. It wasn't just Burmese pythons, but yeah, the Cuban tree frogs, the Brown and Olds, those have been there for, there might as well be there. They might as well be a native species at this point. They've just taken over the, and of course it's the green. It's weird that the Cuban tree frogs took over the green tree frogs habitat. You hardly see those anymore, and the brown anoles took over the green anoles. So I don't know what they have against the color green, but they're out competing them. <laughs> and the cane toads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another thing people people don't realize that. Let's just forget the introduction of of 
amphibian-based pathogens for a second. Let, let's just forget the C word here, Ketra. Let's just forget that for a moment. Let's forget ranavirus. Let's forget all this other stuff. There's a lot of invasive amphibian species that are doing a lot of damage. And that's one of those things that doesn't really get the amount of attention that it needs to because realistically with that, I mean, I, I, to my knowledge, I don't think that the presence of cane toads really has anything to do with the pet trade. In fact, it was really more of a failed experiment at pest control. I mean, at least I know that's what happened with, with the, that's what Dean and I talked about what happened in Australia was that they released cane toads to annihilate some sort of a pest. I mean, they were supposed to wipe them out, but apparently this particular pest, I think it was a cane beetle or something like that. It didn't hang out on the ground where the cane toads were. Instead, it hung out higher up on the cane. So it was completely ineffective and they ended up, yeah. So, I mean, (laughs) there's that. And then there's also, there's aquaculture. There's people that farm bullfrogs in Southeast Asia and they get loose and then they they wreak havoc. And I, I feel like a lot of the issues that are going on now are unjustly thrust upon hobbyists. Because yeah. we're because we're easy target. We we give a face to it. I mean, you can't give a face to some no name farm somewhere in Southeast Asia. It's easier to put a face and a name on a hobbyist, at least here in the US, because that's someone that you can point fingers at. It it's it's easier for the powers that be to do that than it is to you know, single out something that's that's just too obscure for people to really wrap their heads around, or at least that's that's my opinion. As long as we're, as long as we're still down that tangent. No, yeah, I, I completely agree. Well, we're kind of coming towards the end here, but I wanted to ask you this question, and this is totally up to you how you want to answer it. But mm-hmm. what do you think that hobbyists can learn from zoos, and what do you think zoos can learn from hobbyists? Hmm. Yeah, and I and I think I, I think I forgot to even touch on this from your previous question with how hobbyists keep dart frogs versus how zoos keep dart frogs, which I kind of went on a tangent with just reptiles in general. So I will address that. Um, I think definitely with it, with dart frogs in that hobbyists do that zoos don't uh, is the communal species thing, and I know that you've probably seen that, and it's a pretty known fact that zoos do the communal species and it's just it's just not a good look hobbyists it's kind of like a not a good thing or, or mixed species i should say not communal just like mixed species species tanks i know that some really good hobbyists do it and they have success with it i don't personally do that and i know you don't personally do that either um because i just i don't know I, I like i like i think it looks more aesthetic it's just it's just easier to keep them separated and obviously the the mixed breeding thing. But um, I, I was just at the Cincinnati Zoo yesterday uh, when I was on vacation and they had a beautiful exhibit. It was huge. And I see green tree pythons or emerald tree boas, whatever they were, and Colombian boa constrictors. And then just like 30 dart frogs on the floor. And they were like the Tinctorius metechos and the Aratus and the Azurius. And all I'm seeing is the entire 20, 30 minutes I sat in front of that tank and watched was nothing but aggressive behavior, um, wrestling, chasing, 
uh, calling. Uh, it's just, it just wasn't a good look. Um, Maizu personally does do the mixed species. Uh, they do the Tinctorius Azurius with the Tinctorius Cobalt, I believe they are, or Robertus. They look so similar, I have no idea. Um, and they have done breeding, or they've bred before, but I know that they do cull the eggs from them. They don't actually like keep the babies from them. So I know that they're at least doing that. But, um, and just though, I think most zoos, like the zoo I worked at previously, we had a nice planted vivarium. And I've seen other zoos, I've been to like 10 or 12 different zoos, and they've had some decently planted vivariums. But I've been to some zoos that just don't give them any, like they have the fake plants, they have the moss mat, it's just wet constantly, no leaf litter. So it's just, because that's just not the focal point of the zoo. You know, an elephant is a focal point of the zoo, not the dart frog. And I've even, I've even sat in on, on being a zookeeper. It's nice. I get to go to like these AZA conferences and this year was on Zoom. So I got to listen in on some of the things where it's like, it's a, it's a AZA requirement, which is the Association of Zoos and Aquariums to have dart frogs at each institution, each AZA institution, because people expect to see them when they go to a zoo. It's just something they expect to see, like a like an average guest. Um, so they they expect to see them at every zoo. So, but but most zoos don't have that kind of. They're not going to want to have six different enclosures of dart frogs. It's just not feasible when they can put other things in those tanks that are more appealing to the people. They'd rather put six different colors and put them all together and just have the have the exhibit and say screw it. And I just think that that's not right. I'm not. That's not what my zoo does. We keep a few different species together. But um, I haven't, I'm not over there all the time, so I'm not watching their behavior. I haven't seen anything too aggressive. They have a pretty large enclosure, so I'm pretty sure the aggression is pretty low. I've talked to the keepers before, and they say that they're not seeing too much aggression. Um, but the one bad thing that uh, that I see, and I'm not really, I don't really, I've never even really heard of this disease before. Have, have you ever heard of myco? No, I haven't. I think, I can't remember what the full name of it is, myco. I keep wanting to say mycorrhizae, but I know it's like a fungus or something like that, like a or like a like a mushroom. It's just some disease that affects the um, adrenal system. I think that's why. I, like I, I was tempted not to bring this up because I'm not like a super expert on it because I don't work with the amphibians that have myco, um, and I'm and I'm glad I don't because it's highly contagious and I don't want to track it to mine. <laughs> I don't even go in the reptile house for that reason because I don't want to bring anything home to what I have just because of who knows what they have. Um, but that seems to be a pretty thing that they can't get rid of. They're not dying from it. So I don't know if it's too serious of a disease. It might just be something that they can live with. It's definitely not like a parasite or anything like that. So, um, but yeah, I think the mixed, the mixed species thing isn't a good look. And I think 90% of zoos do it. Uh, but I think it's just not up to the keepers. It's more like the higher ups. That makes sense. No, it, it, it does. And, Obviously, there's people. Look, whoever writes the checks is the ones that makes the decision. That that's that's the way that it goes, and I think that that's just the way it is with with everything in life. But I, I agree with you. I'm very against cohabbing and mixing different species for a number of reasons. Many of which you just said about issues with with aggression and unwanted 
breeding between you know, unwanted hybridization and whatnot, but really more along the lines that it gives the public a false idea that these things just congregate together in mass. And to me, it makes people think that they're all the same species, but that they're just in different color forms. And I've actually had conversations with people who told me, oh, well, look, uh, I went to this local store and they said that I could mix and match them. And I'm like, no, you, 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 I mean, like you can, but you, you shouldn't because a lot of them have very, very different behaviors. Some are going to be really bold. Some are going to be really shy. You don't want them hybridizing. And these are animals that can be stressed out being in the presence of even members of their own species. So I, I mean, my personal take is I don't really think that it's a very accurate representation. But you know, it, another interesting thing is the AZA's guidelines of of uh, amphibian keeping, and you can find this pretty easily if you if you Google AZA amphibians. It's about a hundred pages long. I read through the whole thing, and interestingly enough, well, I mean, what you said about them making the recommendation that every zoo have dart frogs that I didn't know, but when you it's, read, it's th- recent. Okay. When you read through the AZA's guidelines, there's a tremendous amount of emphasis put on the contribution of private hobbyists. And a lot of the AZA's recommendations are based on the way hobbyists have been keeping dart frogs in terms of, I mean, even like the terms that they use like bioactive and you know, using, using drainage layers and using like exoterra type terrariums and whatnot, those are all in those recommendations. And I know for a fact that those things came from the hobby first. So my, my question has always been, well, if the hobby is that influential into giving zoos the guidance that they need to keep these species, well, what can we learn from, from zoos? Is that a rhetorical question? <laughs> it's both, I guess. <laughs> um, I mean, what do you, no, what do you think? About what hobbyists can learn from zoos? Yeah, yeah. I feel like hobbyists do things differently than, than what zoos do. I think zoos have a more... And, like, I think... I'm going to go off general hobbyists. I'm not going to go off the Troy Goldbergs or the, like, really high-end dart frog hobbyists. Um, the general dart frog hobbyists that are just like, you know, they set up their bioactive, they buy the hydro balls from Petco and get, get everything set up right there. Um, that they're not going to have the same quarantining, uh, like the, like the really uh, meticulous quarantining, the vet care, the round the clock medicine that they, like the medicine that they can have access to is pretty like it's on the spot. We have vets on the spot. Our vets are amazing. Like we have, we go through a really strict, like 90 day quarantine period. Like we just got, when we got those cobalts or Robertus, whatever they were in, they went through like 90 days in the, in the, um, AMC in our, in our, uh, animal medical center. And they went through all kinds of deworming, you know, testing fecal samples. And they actually came in with parasites They came in with some kind of worms and we, dewormed them we got everything they were all cleared out of their system and they actually had to stay there a little longer they the one thing why that they like doing the moss mats at some zoos and i know they did it for our quarantining process is that it's easy to clean so like you don't want to have 
you know, obviously a big bioactive substrate that you're gonna have to change every day, especially if they have worms and whatnot. So the moss mat, they just take it out, bleach it, disinfect it, disinfect the entire tank, put it right back in. So that thing, I think, I think the vet care, the round the clock vet care, the access to medicine, the access to proper quarantining methods, um, I think trumps any just general hobbyist. They're not going to have that kind of access or knowledge. So I think that the zoos have kind of the upper hand there. But in terms of just like specialization and care, or like maybe even like seeing that something's wrong with the animal, you know what I mean, before it gets too bad. Like, oh, that animal's like not moving as good as I, I've seen it or not eating as much as it normally does. You know what I mean? It's not, the hobbyists might have that. And of course, it's just the bioactive subs, the setups. They're going to be way more extravagant. No one's, no zoos are using hydrolon or, you know, really nice backgrounds, the clay substrates, the springtails, the isopods. Like I, that, that's something that I think hobbyists have the upper hand at. But I think it's just because the zoos, it's just not practical for a zoo to go through all of that. Um, for a dart frog, when they have, you know, a hundred thousand other animals that they have to care for. It's just, it's unfortunate, but that's just the way it is. I think dart frogs are also relatively inexpensive to keep. Which, which Definitely. might also give zoos the upper hand because, I mean, yes, it's inexpensive for the obvious, after the, well, obviously after the initial investment that you lay out for the, the appropriate size enclosure and, and whatnot, mm-hmm. and then the inhabitants themselves. But in the long term, it isn't tremendously expensive. But when you have a zoo, it's a great way to make it look to the public like you have a really, really high-end, expensive exotic animal here when in reality it's not does that make sense it's almost like um oh yeah like to me it seems like it would be much more expensive to keep a pronghorn than it would to be to keep like half a dozen or a dozen tinctorious yeah i definitely think that um the dart frogs take a lot more care than a lot of the other reptiles or amphibians in the, the the reptile house here just because of the fruit fly culturing that's another thing that Zoos can definitely learn from hobbyists. I've tried to help my zoo as much as possible. I've given them like natural recipes. I've given them good, good hobbyists that they could buy from like in bulk if they wanted to. Um, it's up to them if they want to actually use that advice. Um, the food for light cultures don't definitely don't last as long. They're, so they're making more. I'm noticing that they don't really have to. Uh, and definitely, I think with zoos, but on the other hand, zoos have the upper hand in, in like what you're saying. The the dart frogs are inexpensive, but zoos, I think they have more access to more funds than like a general hobbyist is going to have. Like if they wanted, if we, if, if something came up, we can buy something that can help it right away. Whether it be, you know, access to medical equipment, obviously, or um, anything it needs in the terrarium, like at a, at a, at a snap of a finger. So I think that they have that definitely has the impression there. So I don't I don't know if I really answered your question on like learning, or if I just like kind of compared the two, but I hope I hope I did. <laughs> no, I understand. I mean, my my question might have been a little little kind of obscure, but really <laughs> what I meant was it, it's easy to go out and see a large mammal and think, okay, well this isn't that exotic. It's it's native, especially like with a pronghorn. Whereas you bring in these exotic frogs that are brightly colored, they're not that, they're really not that expensive to keep. I mean, I, I can imagine it's, let's just say for argument's sake, it costs maybe 
what, 10 bucks per frog per, per mm-hmm. week to take care of. Whereas yeah. I'm going to assume it's probably more expensive with a, with a pronghorn, but they can, it'll generate more revenue for the zoo because you have an exotic looking species that seems like it's a lot more difficult to care for and more exotic and you'll never see it outside of the confines of a zoo. You, yeah. you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's a, it's a good hook to get people to come in without having to really commit to, um, a, a more difficult species that might not necessarily generate that return in revenue. No. Yeah. That, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So I think all in all, we just, you know, hobbyists and zoos can learn from each other in certain aspects. But I definitely think zoos can learn a bit more from hobbyists. So they need to maybe redo that little manual thing that you read because I don't, I think the general hobbyist is not uh, cohabiting species. So I think once they can get over that, the rest can all kind of be easily fixed. The little small little husbandry things can be fixed uh, relatively easily. I agree. I agree. Well, I I wanted you to mention frog frog galaxy i know we talked a little bit off air why don't you tell us about that so frog galaxy is just kind of a name to my hobby so my hobby has grown i've been keeping dart frogs for like three or four years now um so not like tremendously long time but uh the hobby has grown i like you you like to say this a lot I, i definitely have the collector bug right now um i'm not like hoarding by any means but just I, I if i have a space that's there i'm gonna i like building a tank and i like going through the process of building a tank and setting up the springtails and isopods and adding some frogs to it i think it's a really cool thing and as you heard from my it's pretty i think my list is pretty extensive it's not super impressive by any means compared to other guests that you've had on the show but i definitely am pretty proud of my collection that i have um but yeah it's just it's just something that i i, I wanted to start kind of pays for itself i'm not out here to make any kind of money or anything like that it's more to grow the hobby in my local area and but i also ship you know nationwide um but yeah it's just just to, just to help pay for the hobby itself it could it could get expensive when you have the collector's bug i'm i'm sure you know uh just going into that um but yeah it's just something i started not too long ago probably in january i made the instagram page um it's called Frog Galaxy. Go ahead and give it a follow. It's on Instagram. I think it's Frog underscore Galaxy. I just, I just mostly post pictures of my frogs there, um, and then eventually I want to get a website and post what I have for sale. Um, this last stimulus that I had that everyone got for some reason was like, oh, I want to buy frogs. So I'm, I kind of sold out of all my froglets, whether that was from the mom and pop pet shops that I sell to here locally or just people from around from around the, the United States. So I'm not, I don't have too much available right now, but um, yeah, I just, my, my slogan is a house is not a home without a frog. So <laughs> I think that that's a little cute slogan there. So yeah, if you guys want to give me a follow, I'd love, I'd really appreciate that. Very cool. Very cool. All right, everyone. I want to thank Mason for being a great guest. I know we went kind of, kind of off on a few different tangents, but listen, you know what? Every once in a while, you gotta, you gotta go down those tan, you gotta go down those rabbit holes. So, all right. I want to thank everyone for joining me for this one. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Catch up with you again soon.